Thanks for joining us for a Sunday worship gathering. Let's prepare our hearts for what God has for us today and please give a warm welcome to our high school ministries director, Mark Archia. Hey guys, welcome. Well, I'll, let's try that again. Welcome. Okay, I got a what's up, Mark, and I got some welcomes and maybe, we, maybe you guys just didn't know what to say, so. That's okay. Um, I want to ask this question before I forget, because I forgot last time. Does anybody recognize the title of this, today's sermon? Come on, come on. Yeah, no one checks those things anymore. No one? No ragamuffins. Rich Mullins. No, no, like, okay. I'm not, I'm, I'm not even that old, guys. Rich Mullins, a boy like me, man like you. Ah, okay. That's okay. My name is Mark, if you didn't get that from the video and my silliness up here. Um, welcome again. Car does an awesome job welcoming you guys, but I want you to know how glad I am that you are here. Um, I have two pictures I want to throw up. I thought if I was going to be up here, I might leverage this and brag about my friends. This is the high school ministry leadership team. Um, they're just so stinking awesome. We have so much fun. We, I think we have the best job, honestly. We get to hang out with high school students. We get to ask hard questions, talk about God, be vulnerable with one another. And it is just a stinking blast. So if you see any of them, you have my permission to give them a hard time. They can handle it, I promise. Um, I'm really excited to be with you this morning. We're gonna jump in to the sermon. Recently around here, we've been talking about how Jesus is a servant, how he's a king, how he is a teacher. And just Wednesday and Thursday, we talked about how he's our savior for our Christmas at the Commons. This year for Christmas, my fiance and I spent it alone. It was sad, it was super lonely, it kinda sucked. I'm not even gonna lie. But one thing she said yesterday was, December 26th is the saddest day of the year, Mark. And I'm like, okay, babe, like why? And I'm expecting to hear, there's no gifts, no more family time, no more awesome food. You know what she says, guys? She says, because all the decorations come down. And I'm like, oh geez, like, yeah, that's, that's my girl. But oddly enough, she grew up saying that. And her mom would always say, if it wasn't that way, Dev, it wouldn't be so special. And so that's how I think of Advent and Christmas. And I'm learning not everybody's as nerdy as I am and probably doesn't love Advent as much as I do, but I love it. Perhaps my favorite way that Advent's been described is like this. Advent is like the hush in a theater just before the curtains rise. A hush in a theater just before the curtains rise. I love that. And Friday, friends, if, if you missed the Christmas boat, I'm sorry. We had Christmas. We celebrated our Savior coming. So the curtains are up. The movie started, and we're going to jump in. But now what? Now what's the question? After the birth, what happens next? At 660, again, which is our high school ministry, we've been doing our preaching a little bit differently than normal than in years past. We've been following a lectionary. And a lectionary is simply a pre-selected group of scriptures for the entire year. It follows the church calendar and the Christmas seasons. And so as I was looking to prepare for this message, what the lectionary had for us this morning, it has Luke 2, starting in verse 41. If you're not familiar with the story, it's the one passage that we have that Jesus is a little boy. He's 12 years old and he's in the temple. And it marks this weird time called Jesus's missing years. Because at the end of Luke 2, at the beginning of Luke 3, all of a sudden Jesus goes boom, 12 to 30. So, we're going to jump in there, but before we do, I want to ask a question and kind of share a secret because maybe not everybody knows the right answer to the question. Why do we preach? Why do we preach? Why are you here? 
are we all here gathered? I want to remind us that we preach and we gather together as a church, not because certain people need jobs, not because we like to hear ourselves, even though if you know me, I like to talk a lot, it can seem like that. It's not that. Friends, we preach and we gather and we come here together because we want to hear from God. We want to hear from God because we want to experience life change. And I don't want it to sound corny, but that's our goal this morning is that we would experience life change. And I propose that we would do that by looking at Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to know what the Father's like, look at me. So that's our plan today. And not what we think Jesus is like and not what we want him to be like, but precisely for who he is. Before we jump in, I'll pray, and then we'll get started. How about that? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thanks for everybody gathered here. Thanks, God, that you are exactly who you are and that you love us so, so stinking much. God, I just ask that you would um, use me, Spirit, fill me up, and just use me for your words. Would this not be about me? Would you eliminate me from the equation as much as possible? Put my butt in these seats next to my friends so that I could hear from you too. We love you, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Awesome. So before we jump into the passage, I think I've said that like a bajillion times. You guys are like, when are we gonna jump in? We will, I promise. I wanna set the scene. The scene is, we're gonna go back to Nazareth, which is Jesus' hometown. And the thing about Nazareth, and especially as we read the Bible, we have to look at sometimes what words mean. Because certain people's names and places Get their, their meanings get lost as we go from Greek and Hebrew to English. And so Nazareth, actually, you break it down, yada, yada, all that Greek and Hebrew, all that fancy stuff, it means branch. And it's important that we know that because it's called a branch town because the descendants of David, the royal line, would often settle in Nazareth. Our best scholarship said that Nazareth was 400 people at the most. 400, small town. And the third thing I want us to keep in mind before we jump in is Jesus' family. Joseph, his dad, is an artisan, a builder or a carpenter, right? So that means on the social pyramid, here's the pyramid, they're pretty close to the bottom. Actually, the, the lowest of the low, the poorest of that time are the shepherds, the farmers, and the agriculture workers. But right above that would be the builders and the artisans. And so many people say to say that Jesus was rich, way off target. To say he was even middle class is probably a stretch, but he's not the poorest of the poor. So now if you'll turn with me to Luke 2, we'll start in verse 41. It'll be on the screens. I'm going to read it. It will be on your notes page. Use those, even if you don't know the sermon title. I'm surprised no one did. That's okay. Luke 2, beginning in verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic searching for you. But why did you need to search, he said. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? 
but they didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth with them, and he was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. Now, as we recap the story, at first, nothing seems all that exciting, right? They're going to the Passover festival. It's not until after Joseph and Mary go back to Nazareth that anything starts to happen and Jesus stays behind. And I don't want us to read this passage and look at Joseph and Mary's bad parents. I don't think that's the lesson. There's two reasons that we shouldn't think that. One, Jesus is 12 years old at this point. Now in our culture, we think 12 years old, he's a little boy. Back then, 12 years old is the marks of like a young man. The second thing is, it's not just Joseph, Mary, and the immediate family. It's the extended family and the neighbors all traveling like caravanning together, going from Nazareth to Jerusalem. And so it was probably less likely bad parenting, irresponsibility, and more just, they don't want to micromanage the young man 12-year-old boy Jesus. The second thing we see is as Jesus stayed behind, the parents go all the way back to Jerusalem on a two or three days journey. It takes them the third day to find Jesus. And he's in the what? He's in the temple. And when they find Jesus in the temple, he's doing what? He's listening to the religious teachers. He's asking them questions. And it says that everybody was amazed at his understanding and his teachings. So that gives us a little bit of insight that 12-year-old Jesus has insight on the Torah, has this knowledge and this relationship with God that other 12-year-old boys didn't have. And then we have this crazy weird interaction between a mom and a son. We see Jesus getting a little feisty. His mom says, your father and I have been searching for you everywhere. And Jesus is surprised and said, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I would be in my father's house? Along with his insight and his knowledge of the Torah and who God is, this shows us that, God, that Jesus knew that God was his father, even at 12, to whatever degree, right? So what's the point of this text? This is the beginning of Jesus' missing years. You literally read verse one in chapter three, and it's Jesus getting baptized age 30. Why did Luke record this? What's in here for us today? I wanna, ask, I wanna answer that question in two different ways. One is a little bit more of a historical perspective and it's, it's real simple, it's this. The ancient biographers would only record three things with the people that they were writing about. Their birth, their life, and their death. So it's not that uncommon and they would do that because they would only record the important parts of their lives in order to capture who the person they were recording is. So perhaps the gospel writers simply intend to say Jesus' childhood was that of like every other Jewish 12-year-old boy. Nothing out of the ordinary, at least on the surface. The other thing that I want us to look at is some tension that rises for me as we celebrated Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday Christmas that I read in here. I see Jesus as a 12-year-old boy, know that God is his father and know that he has a special mission on earth. But then what do we read in the interaction with his mom and dad? He leaves the temple. So I'm like, huge red flag, God, hold on. What about the game plan? to save the world. What about the prophecies? What about the prodigy Christmas baby boy in the manger that's supposed to save everybody? Is that whole plan on halt for 18 years? We're gonna talk about career choices next. Let's say it's the year 8 AD. That puts Jesus at 12. And he just had the interaction with his parents in the temple that we just read, that we just recapped. All throughout Galilee, 12-year-old young guys are moving from their hometowns to Jerusalem. They're getting ready to be trained for the priesthood. They're going to be trained by older priests. They are the tribe of Levi. 
when they get to Jerusalem, they'll be taught by older priests and they will learn the details of the law and they'll be tutored in the sacrificial systems of the temple. They'll learn how to take care of and steward the furnishing, furnishings of the inside of the holy place. They'll learn how to butcher lambs and bulls and birds alike. And they will learn how to remove the fat from each of those animals all according to the law. They're gonna become expert butchers. And it will take 18 years until they receive their ordination. There's a second group of people, young men, 12 years old. They're gonna begin their education as soon as possible. A lot of them might stay in their hometown, but a decent amount might also move to Jerusalem. They're gonna be scribes. You would go to Jerusalem to receive a more advanced education. They will learn the rare and delicate skill of writing and oral traditions. Their goal to master applying the Torah, defending the Torah, and preserving it. Most students are often gonna choose their rabbis, just like we would choose our high school professors or our college professor, whichever one's the easiest, right? <laughs> that was like, a, the people who did that laughed and everybody else was like, yeah, I went to college because I loved it. That's funny. You guys gave yourselves out there. There's one more group. This final group are those that would choose rabbis because they wanna be discipled by the rabbis. For instance, Paul of Tarsus was tutored by the rabbi Gamel. And we can look at these rabbis simply as like pastors or Bible teachers. And we can look at the scribes as our theologians or like our huge Bible scholars. But what is Jesus doing at AD 8? Shoot, 8 AD. I was practicing this and someone's like, don't say 88 because it sounds like 88 at 8 AD. That, you, don't, you don't have to laugh at that, that's a bad one. What's Jesus doing at 8 AD? 8 AD. He's not being a scribe. He's not being a rabbi. He could have been a religious professional. That's not what he chose. Remember, this is the same Jesus who's born where? In a manger. He's in Nazareth. How big is Nazareth? 400 people. Who showed up to Jesus' birth? Any scribes? Any priests? The shepherds and the sheep. The sheep were there too. Go base camp. The totem pole, the shepherds, the poorest of the poor showed up to Jesus' birth, not the religious professionals. And now remember Jesus' dad, Joseph. What did he do? He was an artisan, he was a carpenter. I'm gonna turn to Matthew 13 real quick and I'll read Mark 6 as well. This is when Jesus is teaching. When he taught there in the synagogues, everyone was amazed and said, where does he get this wisdom and the power to do miracles? They scoffed at him. He's just the carpenter's son. We know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. All of his sisters live right here among us. Where did he learn these things? And then in Mark 6, the next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where does he get the wisdom and the power to perform these miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. This confirms, friends, that Jesus not only took his father's profession, his earthly father's profession as a carpenter, but what his father did as well. The Greek word is tekton. It's a builder, it's an artisan, it's a carpenter. So here we have Jesus as an artisan, just like his dad. I purposely hid this little bit of information until this point. We need to remember that the end of Luke chapter two, where Jesus was in the temple, that's the last time Joseph is mentioned. So it's probable that at some time after that, he died. 
And if that's the case, Jesus is largely, if not completely, responsible for his four brothers, his mother, and his sisters. Jesus knows what it's like to need steady employment, friends. Jesus knows what it's like to have to put food on the table, not just for himself, for his whole family. And the the picture that we get of Jesus in the gospels, the picture that is portrayed is not one where he makes tools come out of nowhere for his job, where he makes money fall from the trees. He didn't live like a superhero. He came like a man in the likeness of man, ordinary man, ordinary work. So think about it, Jesus the craftsman. Maybe he's running off in Nazareth to catch his client. He falls, scrapes his knees. Maybe he's in the shop, boom, misses his nail by a centimeter and hits his thumb. Jesus having calloused hands from the wood and the rocks that he's working with day after day, week after week. This is the picture of Jesus that we get. And this Jesus, after a full day's worth of work, has sawdust in his hair, bloody nails, maybe a bruised toe, swelling from when he dropped a stone on it, tired, goes to bed. He wants nothing more than to go to bed, rest, and sleep in. But it's Tuesday, so you have to wake up Wednesday and you have to go to work. He has to finish the job that he started in the previous day. So he not only knew work, he sweated and he knew the grind, right? The grind. He worked with humans. He knew the mundaneness, the boredom of manual labor as well. The over and over and over again. And just like the over and over, the the grind, the mundane seems to never end. Neither do the challenges end that comes with working with humans. We know this. We know this. So maybe Jesus had an unsatisfied customer. He's building him a table, the leg's a little bit too short. And this customer tells all of Nazareth, Jesus is a makeshift, his work sucks. Perhaps Jesus had a job and didn't get paid for the job. Jesus knows what it's like to be slighted, to be underappreciated, to be used. And everything in him once is tempted to say, to set the record straight, right? To defend himself, to rise up in anger. But he never gave into temptation. How odd is that? Jesus didn't choose seminary. Jesus doesn't identify with the pastor. He didn't choose to write books and books and books. No, Jesus identifies with the car salesman, the waiter, the graphic designer, the businessman, more so than the pastor or the religious professional. Jesus was a blue collar Messiah, friends. And that's the beauty of this part. He blesses work. He blesses toil. Sweat is now sacred. There's no such thing as secular versus sacred when it comes to Jesus and when it comes to our God. He destroyed the myth that says, if you want to be about God's business, get a church job, get a microphone. That's not true. Prepping meals, changing diapers, those are all valuable to God. Whatever is done for the glory of God is valuable in the Father's eyes. Here's the cool part. There's something else that's going on as Jesus is working and in this artisan shop, and in these missing years. When we turn to the gospel of John, we're repeatedly told that everything that Jesus said, when people push back against him, he's just a carpenter. He didn't go to seminary. How can he teach? This is what his response was. My doctrine is not my own, but the one who sent me. Things like, for I do not speak on my own accord, but rather from the father who sent me. Things like, as the living father has sent me, I live in the father. Jesus made all of these statements when people pushed against him and people challenged him. What's Jesus demonstrating and communicating over and over again? And why would John record this? They're showing 
that as Jesus taught, everything he came from came from his father. That Jesus was in perfect communion with his father. And perhaps that's the same when Jesus was at 12 in the temple. Perhaps it's the same when Jesus was not just teaching, but in the workshop too. I want to lay out this possible scenario. So I want, to, I want to invite you to close your eyes. You don't have to, but it helps me envision things and I want to capture this Jesus. Imagine Jesus at age 18. He's taking a long walk in Nazareth. He's not had work in weeks and he's out of money. The pressure is mounting and he's tempted to worry. One of his sisters accidentally damaged her last set of clothes and she's in need of something to wear. Jesus is flat broke. He can't buy her set, her, his sister a new set of clothes. Disturbing thoughts flood his mind like what will happen if I can't feed my family? As he walks, he communes with the father about his situation. He passes over a meadow and notices the Middle Eastern lilies. Some birds fly overhead and the father speaks to him. My son, look at these birds. I take care of them. And they don't worry a second about their food. Look at the beautiful lilies just before you. I clothe them. They don't clothe themselves. They don't worry about what they will wear, for I clothe them. How much more are you, your sisters, your brothers, and your family worth to me than the birds or the flowers? You have nothing to worry about. I will provide for you. Do not doubt, but only believe. Continue to seek me and my kingdom above all things, and you and your family will have everything you need. And years later, Jesus will sit on a hill, presuming the posture of a teacher, and say this to his disciples. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest food or store in barns, for your heavenly Father is the one who feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all of your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. And if God cares so much about these wonderful wildflowers who are gone today and thrown in the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have such little faith? Did that actually happen? Probably not. But what we gather about the scriptures of everything that Jesus taught says that's probably not too far off the mark. And after 18 years of toil, working in the shop, working for broken humans, for the humans that he would save, working for you and I, with, alongside them. He had 18 years to learn to listen to his father's voice. He didn't give in to temptations. Instead, he always yielded to his father. And perhaps just like then, as a 12-year-old boy, that's what drove him to follow his parents. The father, heavenly father, instructed him to go obey his earthly parents. And so whether as a teenager, a young man, a servant, a king, or a savior, one thing is certain, Jesus was always in perfect communion with his father. His life centered around his dad and his life centered around him being his dad's son. So maybe you needed to hear, maybe you came to church and you went through these walls. Maybe you've come here all the time and maybe you actually need to hear that your work is valuable. Maybe you need to hear that God does not deem your work invaluable or nothing just because it's not a church job. That God does not view the mundane as unimportant. 
I love the way the message version says Hebrews 14. Because if you're like me, maybe this morning you needed to remember that Jesus perfectly understands you and not in some abstract, distant, far away, friends. Hebrews says this, now that we have Jesus, this great high priest with ready access to God, let's not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing. He's experienced it all, all of it but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he's so ready to give. Take the mercy, accept the help. And the last thing I want us to walk away with today is this, that the more we look at Jesus and we understand that he is fully human, we see that there's something different about him. There's something different. T. Austin Sparks says it this way. The point is that God has put right down into this world, into the midst of mankind, a new kind of man who is not just better more or less than us, but different altogether from us. And God has in effect said, that is the man that I have in view. And eternally, it has been my purpose to conform to that image. How important is it therefore for us to understand the real nature and learning the life of our Lord Jesus as lived here on this earth? It's not just a beautiful story about a man living and working and teaching in some distant land far away and long ago. But right up to date, a man is presented to us as altogether different from us in constitution and yet as God's pattern for working in us. What's the difference between Jesus and us, both fully human? Jesus is God's son and Jesus has perfect communion with his father. They didn't just hang the savior on the cross. They hung an artisan, a carpenter. They held a once 12-year-old boy on the cross. And how cool is that? That's my favorite part. When Jesus would be so obedient to his father, even to the point of death, it perfectly reveals the father and his father's desire for us. The beauty is that while Jesus is fundamentally different from us, he died for us and went to the length of death so that we might be God's children too and that we might have perfect communion with, his, with the Father too. So I'd invite you to set your stuff aside now. We're gonna move into this time of a little bit more quiet, a time and give you guys some space to reflect on this morning and to reflect on this past week, Advent, Christmas. A lot of us work tomorrow. I invite you to close your eyes and listen to the Lord. And maybe you're like me and you're really dang good at making excuses. Sometimes you grow weary and drudgery of the work that we do day in and day out, the same thing. And you even deem it trivial and unimportant. Remember that that is not true. Remember that when you are being treated unfair by your boss, when things go array between you and your spouse, that you're not wasting your time. You're not wasting your time more than, no more than Jesus was wasting his. And maybe you're like me and it's easy to look at Jesus as a distant, far off, abstract person or Lord. Don't forget that he's just like you and I and understands us perfectly. Would you use these next few minutes to be with God, to ask God what he would have to say to you this morning? And remember our goal, friends, was life change. Life change isn't always immediate, nor is it always the big things. 
I asked a friend once, how do you want to change the world? And he said, I want to change the world like, by being like Jesus in the small things. So I'm going to do this thing where I'm going to close my eyes now with you. And in a minute, I'm going to offer an invitation to anybody who thinks they want it or a nudge from the Spirit or a nudge from God. And it would be this. If you want to commit for yourself, not for me, not for anyone else, but for you, to be like Jesus in the small things, in your relationships, in your work, in everything you do, would you raise your hand? And, and you doing that is for you to remember right now, you raising your hand and declaring before God, yeah, I want to be like Jesus in the small things. Wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, I'm going to pray for us, friends. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for everyone here. Thanks that we can have time and space to talk about you, to learn about you. We love you so much. Thanks that you love us more and that you loved us first. Pray these things in Jesus' name.